Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Out of the Eons by H.P. Lovecraft and Hazel Heald. I'm your narrator, Jim Campanella. Once again, we are looking at a story that did not originate with Lovecraft, but that he made his own by ghostwriting. And you will see that it fits squarely into the wheelhouse of his own mythos. Hazel Heald was a writer from Somerville, Massachusetts. This was one of five stories that Lovecraft revised for Heald. Eons was published in April 1935 in Weird Tales under Heel's name. Some people have called Out of the Eons the best Lovecraft story that no one talks about. The story is told from the point of view of the curator of the Cabot Museum in Boston. In 1879, a freighter captain discovered an uncharted island, presumably risen from its sunken state and due to volcanic activity. From it, he recovered a strange mummy and metal cylinder containing a scroll. A year later, the mummy is put on display in the museum, and the island mysteriously disappears without a trace. Over the years, the mummy gains a reputation as a possible link to an ancient tale from the Black Book by Frederick von Hutz. The tale in the Black Book is about a man named Tyog, who challenged Gatanthoa, one of the gods of Yugoth, using the power of a magical scroll. In his sleep, however, one of the cultists stole the magical scroll and replaced it with a fake one, and Tyog was never seen again. When the possible link to the Black Book and Tyog reaches the general public, the narrator begins to notice more and more suspicious foreigners coming to the museum. The writer Robert Block penned a screen adaptation of the Lovecraft story for the 1971 TV series Night Gallery. However, it was never produced. It was, however, rewritten by Alvin Sappensley, and then filmed and broadcast as The Last Rites of a Dead Druid. But apparently the story bore little or no resemblance to either Bloch's screenplay or Lovecraft's novelette. And now, Out of the Eons. Manuscript found among the effects of the late Richard H. Johnson, Ph.D., curator of the Cabot Museum of Archaeology, Boston, Massachusetts. Chapter 1 It's not likely that anyone in Boston, or any alert reader elsewhere, will ever forget the strange affair of the Cabot Museum. The newspaper publicity given to that hellish mummy, the antique and terrible rumors vaguely linked to it, the morbid wave of interest and in cult activities during 1932, and the frightful fate of the two intruders on December 1st of that year. They all combined to form one of those classic mysteries which go down for generations as folklore, and become the nuclei of whole cycles of horrific speculation. Everyone seemed to realize, too, that something very vital and unutterably hideous was suppressed in the public accounts of the culminant horrors. Those first disquieting hints as to the condition of one of the two bodies were dismissed and ignored too abruptly, nor were the singular modifications in the mummy given the follow-up which their news value would normally prompt. It also struck people as queer that the mummy was never restored to its case. In these days of expert taxidermy, the excuse that its disintegrating condition made exhibition impractical seemed a peculiarly lame one. 
As curator of the museum, I'm in a position to reveal all the suppressed facts. But this I shall not do during my lifetime. There are things about the world and the universe which it's better for the majority not to know. And I have not departed from the opinion in which all of us, museum staff, physicians, reporters and police, concurred at the period of the horror itself. At the same time, it seems important that a matter of such overwhelming scientific and historic importance should not remain wholly unrecorded. Hence this account which I have prepared for the benefit of serious students. I shall place it among various papers to be examined after my death, leaving its fate to the discretion of my executors. Certain threats and unusual events during the past weeks have led me to believe that my life, as well as that of other museum officials, is in some peril through the enmity of several widespread secret cults of Asiatics, Polynesians, and heterogeneous mystical devotees. Hence it is possible the work of the executors may not be long postponed. Executor's Note Dr. Johnson died suddenly and rather mysteriously of heart failure on April 22, 1933. Wentworth Moore, taxidermist of the museum, disappeared around the middle of the preceding month. On February 18th of the same year, Dr. William Minot, who superintended a dissection connected with the case, was stabbed in the back, dying the following day. The real beginning of the horror, I suppose, was in 1879, long before my term as curator, when the museum acquired that ghastly, inexplicable mummy from the Orient Shipping Company. Its very discovery was monstrous and menacing, for it came from a crypt of unknown origin and fabulous antiquity on a bit of land suddenly upheaved from the Pacific's floor. On May 11, 1878, Captain Charles Weatherby of the freighter Eridonis, bound from Wellington, New Zealand, to Valparaiso, Chile, had sighted a new island unmarked on any chart, and evidently of volcanic origin. It projected quite boldly out of the sea in the form of a truncated cone. A landing party under Captain Weatherby noted evidence of long submersion on the rugged slopes which they climbed, while at the summit there were signs of recent destruction, as by an earthquake. Among the scattered rubble were massive stones of manifestly artificial shaping, and a little examination disclosed the presence of some of that historic Cyclopean masonry found on certain Pacific islands and forming a perpetual archaeological puzzle. Finally the sailors entered a massive stone crypt, judged to have been part of a much larger edifice and to have originally lain far underground, in one corner of which the frightful mummy crouched. After a short period of virtual panic caused partly by certain carvings on the walls, the men were induced to move the mummy to the ship, though it was only with fear and loathing that they touched the thing. Close to the body, as if once thrust into its clothes, was a cylinder of unknown metal containing a roll of thin bluish-white membrane of equally unknown nature, inscribed with peculiar characters in a grayish, indeterminable pigment. In the center of the vast stone floor was a suggestion of a trap-door, but the party lacked apparatus sufficiently powerful to move it. The Cabot Museum, then newly established, 
saw the meagre reports of the discovery, and at once took steps to acquire the mummy and the cylinder. Curator Pickman made a personal trip to Valparaiso, and outfitted a schooner to search for the crypt where the thing had been found, though he met with failure in this matter. At the recorded position of the island there was nothing but the sea's unbroken expanse that could be discerned, and the seekers realized that the same seismic forces that had suddenly thrust the island up had carried it down again to the watery darkness, where it lay brooded for untold eons. The secret of that immovable trap-door would never be solved. The mummy in the cylinder, however, remained, and the former was placed on exhibition early in November 1879 in the museum's Hall of Mummies. The Cabot Museum of Archaeology, which specializes in such remnants of ancient and unknown civilizations as do not fall within the domain of art, is a small and scarcely famous institution, though one of high standing in scientific circles. It stands in the heart of Boston's exclusive Beacon Hill district, in Mount Vernon Street near Joy, housed in a former private mansion with an added wing in the rear, and it was a source of pride to its austere neighbors until the recent terrible events brought it to an undesirable notoriety. The Hall of Mummies on the western side of the original mansion, which was designed by Bullfinch and erected in 1819, is justly esteemed by historians and anthropologists as harboring the greatest collection of its kind in America. Here may be found typical examples of Egyptian embalming, from the earlier Saqqara specimens to the last Coptic attempts of the 8th century. Mummies of other cultures, including the prehistoric Indian specimens found in the Aleutian Islands. Agonized Pompeian figures molded in plaster from tragic hollows in the ruin-choked ashes. Naturally mummified bodies from mines and other excavations in all parts of the earth, some surprised by their last tearing death throes. Everything, in short, which any collection of the sort could well be expected to contain. In 1879, of course, it was much less ample than it is now. Yet even then it was remarkable. But that shocking thing from the primal Cyclopean crypt on an ephemeral sea-spawned island was always its chief attraction, and most impenetrable mystery. The mummy was that of a medium-sized man of an unknown race, and was cast in a peculiar crouching posture. The face, half-shielded by claw-like hands, had its underjaw thrust far forward, while the shriveled feature bore an expression of fright so hideous that few spectators could view them unmoved. The eyes were closed, with lids clamped down tightly over eyeballs apparently bulging and prominent. Bits of hair and bare remained, and the color of the whole was sort of a dull neutral gray. In texture the thing was half leathery and half stony, forming an insoluble enigma to those experts who sought to ascertain how it was embalmed. In places bits of its substance were eaten away by time and decay. Rags of some peculiar fabric with suggestions of unknown desire still clung to the object. Just what made it so infinitely horrible and repulsive, one could hardly say. For one thing, there was a subtle, indefinable sense of limitless antiquity and utter alienage 
which affected one like a view from the brink of a monstrous abyss of unplumbed blackness. But mostly it was the expression of crazed fear on the puckered, prognathous, half-shielded face. Such a symbol of infinite, inhuman, cosmic fright could not help communicating the emotion to the beholder, amidst a disquieting cloud of mystery and vain conjecture. Among the discriminating few who frequented the Cabot Museum, this relic of an elder forgotten world soon acquired an unholy fame. Though the institution's seclusion and quiet policy prevented it from becoming a popular sensation of the Cardiff giant sort, in the last century the art of vulgar ballyhoo had not invaded the field of scholarship to the extent it has now succeeded in doing. Naturally, savants of various kinds tried their best to classify the frightful object, though always without success. Theories of a bygone Pacific civilization, of which the Easter Island images and the megalithic masonry of Ponape and Non-Matol are conceivable vestiges, were freely circulated among students, and learned journals carried varied and often conflicting speculations on a possible former continent whose peaks survived as the myriad islands of Melanesia and Polynesia. The diversity in dates assigned to the hypothetical vanished culture, or continent, was at once bewildering and amusing, yet some surprisingly relevant allusions were found in certain myths of Tahiti and other islands. Meanwhile, the strange cylinder and its baffling scroll of unknown hieroglyphs, carefully preserved in the museum library, received its own share of attention. No question could exist as to their association with the mummy. Hence all realized that in the unraveling of their mystery, the mystery of the shriveled horror would in all probability be unraveled as well. The cylinder, about four inches long by seven-eighths of an inch in diameter, was of a queerly iridescent metal utterly defying chemical analysis and seemingly impervious to all reagents. It was tightly fitted with a cap of the same substance, and bore engraved figurings of an evidently decorative and possibly symbolic nature, conventional designs which seemed to follow a peculiarly alien, paradoxical, and doubtfully describable system of geometry. Not less mysterious was the scroll it contained, a neat roll of some thin bluish-white, unanalyzable membrane, coiled round a slim rod of metal like that of the cylinder, and unwinding to a length of some two feet, the large, bold hieroglyphs extending in a narrow line down the centre of the scroll, and penned or painted with a grey pigment, defied analysis. They resembled nothing known to linguists or paleographers, and could not be deciphered despite the transmission of photographic copies to every living expert in the given field. It is true that a few scholars, unusually versed in the literature of occultism and magic, found vague resemblances between some of the hieroglyphs and certain primal symbols described or cited in two or three very ancient, obscure, and esoteric texts, such as the Book of Iban, reputed to descend from forgotten Hyperborea, the panodic fragments alleged to be pre-human, and the monstrous and forbidden Necronomicon, of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred. None of these resemblances, however, was beyond dispute. 
and because of the prevailing low estimation of occult studies, no effort was made to circulate copies of the hieroglyphs among mystical specialists. Had such a circulation occurred at this early date, the later history of the case might have been very different. Indeed, a glance at the hieroglyphs by any reader of von Junz's horrible nameless cults would have established a linkage of unmistakable significance. At this period, however, the readers of that monstrous blasphemy were exceedingly few, copies having been incredibly scarce in the interval between the suppression of the original Dusseldorf edition in 1839 and the Bridewell translation in 1845 and the publication of the expurgated reprint by the Golden Goblin Press in 1909. Practically speaking, no occultist or student of the primal past esoteric lore had his attention called to the strange scroll until the recent outburst of sensational journalism which precipitated the horrible climax. Chapter 2 Thus matters glided along for a half-century, following the installation of the frightful mummy at the museum. The gruesome object had a local celebrity among the cultivated Bostonians, but no more than that. While the very existence of the cylinder and scroll, after a decade of futile research, was virtually forgotten. So quiet and conservative was the Cabot Museum that no reporter or feature writer ever thought of invading its uneventful precincts for rabble-tickling material. The invasion of Ballyhoo commenced in the spring of 1931, when a purchase of somewhat spectacular nature, that of the strange objects and inexplicably preserved bodies found in crypts beneath the almost vanished and evilly famous ruins of Chateau Fourflamme in Aveyron, France, brought the museum prominently into the news columns. True to its hustling policy, the Boston Pillar sent a Sunday feature writer to cover the incident and pad it with an exaggerated general account of the institution itself, and this young man, Stuart Reynolds by name, hit upon the nameless mummy as a potential sensation, far surpassing the recent acquisitions, nominally forming his chief assignment. A smattering of theosophical lore and a fondness for the speculations of such writers as Colonel Churchward and Lewis Spence concerning lost continents and primal forgotten civilizations made Reynolds especially alert for any Aeonian relic like the unknown mummy. At the museum the reporter made himself a nuisance through constant and not always intelligent questioning, and endless demands for the movement of encased objects to permit photographs from unusual angles. In the basement library room he pored endlessly over the strange metal cylinder and its membranous scroll, photographing them from every angle and securing pictures of every bit of the weird hieroglyph text. He likewise asked to see all the books with any bearing whatever on the subject of primal cultures and sunken continents, sitting for three hours taking notes and leaving only in order to hasten to Cambridge for a sight, if permission were granted, of the abhorred and forbidden Necronomicon in the Widener Library. On April 5th the article appeared in the Sunday Pillar, smothered in photographs of mummy, cylinder, and hieroglyph scroll, and couched in the peculiarly simpering infantile style which the Pillar affects with the benefit of its vast, mentally immature clientele. 
full of inaccuracies, exaggerations, and sensationalism, it was precisely the sort of thing to stir the brainless and fickle interest of the herd, and as a result, the once quiet museum began to be swarmed with chattering and vacuously staring throngs such as its stately corridors had never known before. There were scholarly and intelligent visitors, too, despite how puerile the article was. The pictures had spoken for themselves, and many persons of mature attainments sometimes see the pillar by accident. I recall one very strange character who appeared during November, a dark, turbaned, and bushily-bearded man with a laboured, unnatural voice, curiously expressionless face, clumsy hands covered with absurd white mittens, who gave a squalid West End address and called himself Swami Chandraputra. This fellow was unbelievably erudite in occult lore, and seemed profoundly and solemnly moved by the resemblance of the hieroglyphs on the scroll to certain signs and symbols of a forgotten elder world about which he professed vast intuitive knowledge. By June the fame of the mummy and scroll had leaked far beyond Boston, and the museum had inquiries and requests for photographs from occultists and students of Arcata from all over the world. This was not altogether pleasing to our staff, since we are a scientific institution without sympathy for fantastic dreamers. Yet we answered all questions with civility. One result of these catechisms was a highly learned article in the occult review by the famous New Orleans mystic Etienne Laurent de Marigny, in which was asserted the complete identity of some of the odd geometrical designs on the iridescent cylinder and of several of the hieroglyphs on the membranous scroll, with certain ideographs of horrible significance, transcribed from primal monoliths or from the secret rituals of hidden bands of esoteric students and devotees, reproduced in the hellish and suppressed black book or the nameless cults by von Junst. De Merny recalled the frightful death of von Junst in 1840, a year after the publication of his terrible volume at Dusseldorf, and commented on his blood-curdling and partly suspected sources of information. Above all, he emphasized the enormous relevance of the tales with which von Junst linked most of the monstrous ideographs he had reproduced. These tales, in which a cylinder and scroll were expressly mentioned, held a remarkable suggestion of a relationship to things at the museum no one could deny. Yet they were of such breathtaking extravagance, involving such unbelievable sweeps of time and such fantastic anomalies of a forgotten elder world, that one could much more easily admire than believe them. And admire them the public certainly did, for copying in the press was universal. Illustrated articles sprang up everywhere, telling or purporting to tell the legends of the Black Book, expatiating on the horror of the mummy, comparing the cylinder's designs and the scroll's hieroglyphs with the figures reproduced by Van Hulst, and indulging in the wildest, most sensational, and most irrational theories and speculations. Attendance at the museum was tripled, and the widespread nature of the interest was attested by the plethora of mail on the subject, most of which was inane and superfluous. Apparently the mummy in its origin formed, for imaginative people, a close rival to the depression 
as chief topic of 1931-32. For my own part, the principal effect of the Fuhrer was to make me read von Junz's monstrous volume in the Golden Goblin edition, a perusal that left me dizzy and nauseated, and yet at the same time thankful I had not seen the utter infamy of the unexpurgated text. Chapter 3 The archaic whispers reflected in the black book and linked with designs and symbols so closely akin to what the mysterious scroll and cylinder bore were indeed of a character to hold one spellbound, and not a little awestruck. Leaping an incredible gulf of time, behind all the civilizations, races, and lands we know, they clustered round a vanished nation and a vanished continent of the misty, fabulous dawn years, that to which legend has given the name of Mew, and which old tablets in the primal Nakhal tongue speak of as flourishing two hundred thousand years ago, when Europe harbored only hybrid entities, and lost Hyperborea knew the nameless worship of black amorphous Sophogua. There was mention of a kingdom of a province called Kinar, in a very ancient land where the first human people had found monstrous ruins left by those who had dwelt there before, vague waves of unknown entities that had filtered down from the stars and lived out their eons on a forgotten nascent world. Kanar was a sacred place, since from its midst the bleak basalt cliffs of Mount Yadith Go soared starkly into the sky, topped by a gigantic fortress of cyclopean stone, infinitely older than mankind and built by the alien spawn of the dark planet Ugoth, which had colonized the earth before the birth of terrestrial life. The spawn of Ugoth had perished eons before, but had left behind them one monstrous and terrible living thing, which could never die. Their hellish god or patriot demon, Gatanothoa, which lowered and brooded eternally, the one seen in the crypts beneath that fortress on Yadith Go. No human creature had ever climbed Yadith Go or seen that blasphemous fortress except as a distant and geometrically abnormal outline against the sky. Yet most agreed that Gatano Thoa was still there, wallowing and burrowing in unsuspected abysses beneath the megalithic walls. There are always those who believe the sacrifices must be made to Katano Thoa, lest it crawl out of its hidden abysses and waddle horribly through the world of men, as it had once waddled through the primal world of the Yugoth spawn. People said that if no victims were offered, Katano Thoa would ooze up to the light of day and lumber down the basalt cliffs of Yadith Go, bringing doom to all it might encounter. For no living thing could behold Gathanothoa, or even a perfect graven image of Gathanothoa, however small, without suffering a change more horrible than death itself. Sight of the god or its image was all the legends of the Yugoth spawn agreed, and it meant paralysis and petrification of a singularly shocking sort, in which the victim was turned to stone and leather on the outside, while the brain within remained perpetually alive horribly fixed and imprisoned through the ages, and maddeningly conscious of the passage of interminable epochs of helpless inaction till chance and time might complete the decay of the petrified shell 
and leave it exposed to die. Most brains, of course, would go mad long before this eon-deferred release could arrive. No human eyes, it was said, had ever glimpsed Gathanothoa, though the danger was as great now as it had been for the Yugoth spawn. And so there was a cult in Kana, which worshipped Gathanothoa, and each year sacrificed to it twelve young warriors and twelve young maidens. These victims were offered up on a flaming altar in the marble temple near the mountain's base, for none dared to climb Yadith Goa's basalt cliffs or draw near the Cyclopean pre-human stronghold on its crest. Vast was the power of the priests of Katanothoa, since upon them alone depended the preservation of Kana, and all the lands of Mu from the petrifying emergence of Katanothoa out of its unknown burrows. There were in the land a hundred priests of the Dark God, under Imash Mo, the high priest, who walked before King Thaban of the Noth Feast, and stood proudly while the king knelt at the Doric shrine. Each priest had a marble house, a chest of gold, two hundred slaves, a hundred concubines, besides immunity from civil law and the power of life and death, Overall in Kana, save the priests of the king. Yet in spite of these defenders, there was ever a fear in the land lest Gathanothoa slither up from the depths and lurch viciously down the mountain to bring horror and petrification to mankind. In the latter years, the priests forbid men even to guess or imagine what its frightful aspect might be. It was in the year of the Red Moon estimated as B.C. 173,148 by von Junst, that a human being first dared to breathe defiance against Gatanotoa and its nameless menace. This bold heretic was Tayog, the high priest of Shabnigarath, and the guardian of the copper temple of the goat with a thousand young. Tayog had thought long on the powers of the various gods, and had had strange dreams and revelations, touching the life of this and earlier worlds. In the end, he felt sure that the gods friendly to man could be arrayed against the hostile gods, and believed that Shabnigarath, Nug, and Yeb, as well as Yig, the serpent god, were ready to take sides with man against the tyranny and presumption of Gatanothoa. Inspired by the mother goddess, Tyog wrote down a strange formula in the hieratic Nakhal of his order, which he believed would keep the possessor immune from the dark god's petrifying power. With this protection, he reflected it might be possible for a bold man to climb the dreaded basalt cliffs, first of all human beings, and enter the Cyclopean fortress beneath which Katanothoa reputedly brooded. Face to face with the god and the power of Shab Nigarath and her sons on his side, Tyog believed that he might be able to bring it to terms and at last deliver mankind from its brooding menace. With humanity freed through his efforts, there'd be no limits to the honors he might claim. All the honors of the priests of Gatanothoa would perforce be transferred to him, and even kingship, or maybe godhood might conceivably be within his reach. So Tayog wrote his protective formula on a scroll of Thagon membrane. According to von Junst, the inner skin of the extinct Yakith lizard, 
and enclosed it in a carven cylinder of laugh metal, the metal brought by the elder ones from Ugarth, and found in no mine on earth. This charm carried in his robe would make him proof against the menace of Gatanathoa. It would even restore the dark god's petrified victims, if the monstrous entity should ever emerge and begin its devastations. Thus he proposed to go up the shunned and man-untrodden mountain, invade the alien-angled citadel of Cyclopean stone, and confront the shocking devil entity in its lair. Of what would follow he could not even guess, but the hope of being mankind's saviour lent strength to his will. He had, however, reckoned without the jealousy and self-interest of Gathana Toa's pampered priests. No sooner did they hear of his plan than fearful for their prestige and privilege, in case the demon god should ever be dethroned, they set up a frantic clamour against the so-called sacrilege, crying that no man might prevail against Gathanathoa, and that any effort to seek it would merely provoke it to a hellish onslaught against mankind, which no spell or priestcraft could hope to avert. With those cries they hoped to turn the public mind against Teog. Yet such was the people's yearning for freedom from Gatanothoa, and such their confidence in the skill and zeal of Teog, that all the protestations came to naught. Even the king, usually a puppet of the priests, refused to forbid Teog's daring pilgrimage. It was then that the priests of Gatanothoa did by stealth what they could not do openly. One night Imash Mo, the high priest, stole to Teog in his temple chamber, and took from his sleeping form the metal cylinder, silently drawing out the potent scroll and putting in its place another scroll, of great similitude, yet varied enough to have no power against any god or demon. When the cylinder was slipped back into the sleeper's cloak, Imash Mo was content for he knew Tiag was very little likely to study the cylinder's contents again. Thinking himself protected by the true scroll, the heretic would march up the forbidden mountain and into the evil presence, and Gatanathoa, unchecked by any magic, would take care of the rest. It would no longer be needful for Gatanathoa's priest to preach against the defiance. Let Tiag go his way and meet his doom and secretly the priests would always cherish the stolen scroll. The true and potent charm, handing it down from one high priest to another, for use in any dim future when it might be needful to contravene the devil-god's will. So the rest of the night Imash Mo slept in great peace, with the true scroll in a new cylinder, fashioned for its harborage. It was dawn on the day of the sky-flames, nomenclature undefined by von Junst, that Teog, amidst the prayers and chanting of the people, and King Theban's blessing on his head, started up the dreaded mountain with a staff of tloth wood in his right hand. Within his robe was the cylinder, holding what he thought to be the true charm, for he had indeed failed to find out the imposture. Nor did he see any irony in the prayers which Imash Mo and the other priests of Gatanathoa intoned for his safety and success. All that morning the people stood and watched as Teog's dwindling form struggled up the shunned basalt slope hitherto alien to men's footsteps, and many stayed watching long after he had vanished 
where a perilous ledge led round to the mountain's hidden side. That night a few sensitive dreamers thought they heard a faint tremor convulsing the hated peak, though most ridiculed them for the statement. The next day vast crowds watched the mountain and prayed, and wondered how soon Tayag would return, and so the next day and the next. For weeks they hoped and waited, then they wept, nor did anyone ever see Tayog, who would have saved mankind from fears again. Thereafter men shuddered at Tayog's presumption, and tried not to think of the punishment his impiety had met. The priests of Katanathoa smiled to those who might resent the god's will, or challenge its right to the sacrifices. In later years the ruse of Imashmo became known to the people, yet the knowledge availed not to change the general feeling that Katana Thoa was better left alone. None ever dared defy it again. And so the ages rolled on, and king succeeded king, and high priest succeeded high priest, and nations rose and decayed, and lands rose above the sea and returned into the sea, and many millennia decay fell upon Kana, till at last on a hideous day of storm and thunder, terrific rumbling and mountain-high waves, all the land of Mew sank into the sea forever. Yet down the later eons thin streams of ancient secrets trickled. In distant lands there met together grey-faced fugitives who had survived the sea-fiend's rage, and strange skies drank the smoke of altars reared to vanished gods and demons. Though none knew of what bottomless deep the sacred peak and cyclopean fortress of dreaded Gitanatoa had sunk, there were still those who mumbled its name and offered to it nameless sacrifices, lest it bubble up through the leagues of ocean and shamble among men, spreading horror and petrification. Around the scattered priests grew the rudiments of a dark and secret cult, secret because the people of the new lands had other gods and devils and thought only evil of elder and alien ones. And within that cult many hideous things were done, and many strange objects cherished. It was whispered that a certain line of elusive priests still harbored the true charm against Katana Thoa, which Imish Mole stole from the sleeping Teog, though none remained who could read or understand the cryptic syllables, or who could even guess in one part of the world the lost Kana, the dreaded peak of Yadith Go, and the titan fortress of the devil guarded Lane. Though it flourished chiefly in those Pacific regions around which Mew itself had once stretched, there were rumors of the hidden and detested cult of Gatana Thoa in ill-fated Atlantis, and on the abhorred plateau of Leng. Von Junst implied to its presence in the fabled subterranean kingdom of Kinyan, and gave clear evidence that it had penetrated Egypt, Chaldea, Persia, China, the forgotten Semite empires of Africa, and Mexico and Peru in the New World, that it had a strong connection with the witchcraft movement in Europe, against which the bulls of popes were vainly directed. He more than hinted strongly. The West, however, was never favorable to its growth, and public indignation, aroused by glimpses of hideous rites and nameless sacrifices, wholly stamped out many of its branches. In the end it became a hunted, doubly furtive underground affair, yet never could its nucleus be quite exterminated. It always survived somehow, 
chiefly in the Far East and on Pacific Islands, where its teachings became merged into the esoteric lore of the Polynesian Aroi. Von Yuntz gave subtle and disquieting hints of actual contact with the cult, so that as I read I shouted at what was rumored about his death. He spoke of the growth of certain ideas regarding the appearance of the devil-god, a creature which no human being, unless it were the too daring Tayag, had ever seen, and contrasted this habit of speculation with the taboo prevailing in ancient Mew against any attempt to imagine what the horror looked like. There was a peculiar fearfulness about the devotee's awed and fascinated whispers on the subject, whispers heavy with morbid curiosity concerning the precise nature of what Tayog had confronted in that frightful pre-human edifice on the dreaded and now sunken mountains before the end, if it was an end, finally came, and I felt oddly disturbed by the German scholar's oblique and insidious references to this topic. Scarcely less disturbing were von Junz's conjectures on the whereabouts of the stolen scroll of cantrips against Katanathoa, and on the ultimate uses to which the scroll might be put. Despite all my assurances that the whole matter was purely mythical, I could not help shivering at the notion of a latter-day emergence of the monstrous god, and that the picture of a humanity turned suddenly to a race of abnormal statues each encasing a living brain doomed to inert and helpless consciousness for untold eons of futurity. The old Dusseldorf savant had a poisonous way of suggesting more than he stated, and I could understand why his damnable book was suppressed in so many countries, as blasphemous, dangerous, and unclean. I writhed with revulsion, yet the thing exerted an unholy fascination, and I could not lay it down till I finished it. The alleged reproductions of design and ideographs from Mew were marvelously and startlingly like the markings on the strange cylinder and the characters on the scroll. On the whole account teemed with details having vague, irritating suggestions of resemblance to things connected with the hideous mummy. The cylinder and scroll, the Pacific setting, the persistent notion of old Captain Weatherby that the Cyclopean crypt where the mummy was kept had once lain under a vast building. Somehow I was vaguely glad that the volcanic island had sunk before that massive suggestion of a trap door could ever be opened. <laughs>